This is Film Tank. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. We're going to make film history. Can you say that again? Just the way you say it. Baby, it's time to lose their head. They won't know what they're looking at, but why they like it, but they'll know they want it. everyone welcome in to episode 208 of film tank alex diekman here along with nick cheney hello (laughs) i'm angry the kool-aid man (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) oh oh it's good to have you here bud thank you (laughs) also tucson egan not guilty has joined us (laughs) He's, he knows, Objection! I was going to say, Tucson knows what to tell the officer. That's... that's good. Jesus. <laughs> I did not see that squirrel. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. It's going to haunt me for the rest of my fucking life. Deep cut! Yeah, that's a deep cut. Uh, that's, part of, that's part of the film take lore. Yeah. yeah. This is true. Of course, you remember that we were watching Tucker and Dale vs. Evil that oh, evening. Oh, of course I remember that. When that man drove into your car because of the squirrel and knocked your car into someone else's yard yep night of my birthday oh nuts <laughs> night of my birthday yep. i like that it's good stuff yep. uh in addition to the regular three amigos uh our friend sam is here with us hey hey hello thanks for joining us as always you're welcome and i'm Thank really you. happy because it's taken i don't know how many times you've been on maybe like 10 11 whatever it's been but we did not do the knocking bit which I'm really proud of us that we've finally gotten past that at least for one episode. Me too. Stop looking at me like that. Well, you're the one who does it, so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the film we are going to be discussing on this very episode, as Nick just handed me the physical Criterion copy that we just viewed. I come prepared. I. That's good because we actually watched this uh, That's right. Disc that you have here. And if yep. you hadn't, we wouldn't have been able to do this episode. That so is thanks. True. Yeah. So the film we're talking about is a uh, classic from 1957, and it is Twelve Angry Men. Uh, the well, the original film version, at least, mm-hmm. uh, directed by Sidney Lumet, hey. who uh, did films either in six or seven different decades. I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, no, he from the fifties all the way up until before the we. I, you know what I said it uh, yeah. off the podcast. I'm going to say it on the podcast. Okay. We have now randomly done Sidney Lumet's, uh, as of this episode at least, first film with 12 Angry Men, and his last film with Before the Devil Even Knows You're Dead. So what What a wide berth of a career. I was going to say, clearly uh, the world and the uh, filmmaking that he was doing was in a different place. Yeah, but yeah. just like Scorsese, he adapts, he goes with it. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And he doesn't make Marvel movies. Well, uh, I don't think he makes Marvel movies anymore because I think he passed away. So, well, I yeah. Look, they're bringing James Dean back from the dead. That Anything is true. Is possible. Mm. We're gonna get a Sidney Lumet directed movie uh, with some CGI. That doesn't make a any CGI sense. director. <laughs> Grandma Tarkin will also be making an appearance. Ooh, mm. this is all just awful. <laughs> this is the state of the world we're living in. Too, yeah. So. yeah, unfortunately, it's really sad when. Conversation that I've had regularly, I think, with Nick and other so other people, and I, again, I'm assuming that most uh, major movie stars have done this, but I really hope they've all copyrighted their likeness. Yeah, no, they haven't. I will actually say on this podcast because mm-hmm. we've had this conversation on the podcast, mm-hmm. between, especially uh, between you and my uh, you and myself, you Alex. and my son, <laughs> you. Uh, Where you have said this explicitly, Mm. that from our talks from, you know, from the days of Jeff Bridges and Tron Legacy all the way to, you know, Marvel doing de-aging with uh, Robert Downey or Kurt Russell or whatever, Mm -hmm. and especially the Star Wars and whatnot, that there there would come a day in which a person from, you know, and you had cited like Marlon Brando, you know, whatnot, but no, man, like, that's what's eerily pressing about what you had said is that not only were you pretty much dead on, but it was actually in the fucking lifetime of this podcast. And I, if not so much that I never thought it would come, I just didn't think it was going to come within like the next five years. I mean, it, it, we, we don't need to talk about it really that much, but, and I know there was de-aging done and not just CGI of uh, people, although I'm really not sure about Edward Furlong and what happened there. But, oh, in uh, Terminator. Yeah, but I was gonna say the uh, CGI at the in the beginning of Terminator: Dark Fate is pretty fucking good. It is good, and yeah. um, I, I will give it that. But at least in there, I don't feel grossed out because that's a property trying to play with its own history. But what sure. you have explicitly stated in the in the past was that you believed that there would come a day in which somebody would just be casted, a dead actor. Uh, in a movie that had nothing to do with them, their career, or anything like that, and that they would play a full-fledged character. And yeah. that is certainly what the headlines of today has suggested, yeah. with James Dean being casted in a Vietnam drama. And, oh, boy. Um, who's going to do mocap? Andy Serkis, Andy I Serkis. <laughs> Andy Serkis will play the role of... Forever. Uh, the understudy <laughs> of James Dean. I love how <laughs> the family of James Dean, whatever the estate, whatever, has said, like, we're so excited that this will be his fourth film. I'm like, nope. Stop. Definitely it won't not. be. Like, I actually don't even, like, like I don't hold anything against them for agreeing to it. Whatever. Mm. I more am just pissed that it, like, a happened. director would actually want this, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, but to say this will be his fourth film, nope. That's not how acting works. But Nick, no. who are you to like deny this this director if he a wants white to cast, male. if he wants to like have James Dean in his film? What if he wants to have James Dean in his film? What if he wants to have they Kevin get the Spacey porn star named film? James Dean? I what don't is, really what care. If he wants to have, um, I just love the tone. I actually did think all the headlines <laughs> were about the 
porn star who unfortunately is not a good person. No, it's and not. Yeah. Um, I just love it. It did take me a while to actually connect the dots, which oh, is really I... sad. <laughs> that A says a lot about where my head is at with the current state of cinema and where my interests lie. And to, um, I guess, my knee jerk reaction to people actually wanting to do shit like this. Yeah, I, uh, the, the story, I just keep coming back to this. I, I've had to come back to it a few times today. And when we talked, we discussed it earlier, uh, I just, the, like, this, the idea that, oh, we, you know, we thought about different, and boy, we just kept, we just had to do James Dean. It was like, no, you didn't. This. Yeah, you know? yeah, research. Like, the, the idea that that's the quote, it's like, so what did you do before <laughs> landing on this? Mm-hmm. Apparently, every actor living was not good enough, mm-hmm. and we're like, you know what? Fuck it. We're going live with CGI. Uh, yep. It's just, I don't Tom know. Hardy was not good enough. So well, that I understand. <laughs> just in general, that's a that's a good idea to skip that, especially I mean, did in a you see him in Legend. We saw that in the theater. We did. I actually saw uh, on HBO uh, Go when I was browsing through their movies. Mm-hmm. I saw the little like picture they use for it because I was like, Legend, what is that? And mm-hmm. I saw that of them in the limo. Yeah, and I was like, Oh boy, that's yeah. that's a real movie. Yep. And then we saw it in the theater. It was great. It was not. It's not a good film. So, Twelve Angry Men, uh, a film that uh, Sam suggested that we uh, do an episode on. And uh, uh, when we come to your turn, I definitely hope you'll give us and the audience a little background on why you chose this particular film. Good job, Sam. But uh, in addition to being directed by Sidney LeMay, this film stars Henry Fonda. And I'll just name off all of the angry, <laughs> all of the angry white people in this movie, which are, are um, L. Sorry, Lee J. Cobb, Martin Balsam, mm. John Fiedler, E. G. Marshall, yeah. Jack Klugman. There's a name. Edward Bins. That's a name right there for you. Let me tell these you. These are all names. Oh, yeah. These are real actors. Although, Edward Bins was in quite a few things over the years, including... Genuinely, this was a who's who at, at the at time. At the time. Yeah. Well, I was talking about even just years after this. He was in The Verdict and also uh, the movie Patton. Uh What's his name? Uh, one of the other two were in The Verdict as well. Oh, okay. Uh, I want to say E.G. Marsh. No, Jack Warden. Oh, okay. Jack Warden was. Jack yeah. Warden, who plays the uh, the only... Which was directed by Sidney Lumet, so it makes sense. Oh, okay. Anyway. Uh, yeah, uh, Jack Warden, uh, definitely uh, the pacifist of the group here, um, who I always remember from both The Replacements and Dirty Work, unfortunately. Wow, uh, really? Yeah. I remember him in the replacements. I I don't know, but I've seen like dirty work from like start to finish. Oh, you don't need to. <laughs> yeah, but uh, we're talking about the uh, what do you call the it? Norm Macdonald Norm film. Norm Macdonald, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, he also was in the Great Muppet Caper. Oh, those are always fun. I've never seen that. Um, yeah, it's it's it's, it's good. No, you're not going to break my balls like. over that, but you're going to break my balls over Christmas Vacation. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, that's it's, just a it's just another staple. Muppet movie. Yeah. Christmas vacations. Like, you said you had never seen a Muppet movie. That would be the equivalent of saying you've never heard of of Christmas. Vacation. I mean, I've I've seen Muppet Treasure Island. Okay, there you go. That's it. Yep, that's, that's all it. you had to do. That's it. I had the. Hey, but he only saw Muppet Treasure Island because he wanted to see Tim Curry's performance. That's actually true. <laughs> Which is a good point. Honestly, that's, under- when I was a kid. that's an underrated one. It's not yeah. like Muppets in Space, which Great, is like yeah. just genuinely. He was bad. Like my favorite villain in everything. 
Yeah. Mm. I used to have the uh, CD-ROM, the PC game of Muppet oh, Treasure Island. Oh, yeah, I yeah, played there those was games. A, there was a really fun moment when you have to like clean the ship's window or something like that, yeah. and you basically, I can't remember if you used a sponge or Rizzo the Rat as the sponge, <laughs> ah. but it was it was something along those lines. Reminds me of those old uh, Jumpstart games that I used to play. Yes. Weren't those great? I <laughs> distinctly remember those. Yeah. And, so, uh, play the shit out of those. This is getting very, well. very off anyway. topic. Sorry. But... Yeah, mom. <laughs> uh, going back, and I haven't really watched them lately, but I've just thought about specific things uh, regarding some of the dialogue in the Muppet movies, which obviously are clearly made for children. Mm-hmm. Um, just even though I am well aware that she's a pig, um, just the <laughs> shaming of Miss Piggy is. Well, yeah. That's ooh, boy. Yeah. What's yeah. This? No, it's it's awful. It, it, <laughs> in the... Um, that yeah. character Ooh. always gets a short ship. I don't necessarily take umbrage with the way I would say the characters treat her because I kind of buy the collective exasperation. But I do take umbrage with the way people talk about her as if we should conflate our own opinions with the way Kermit treats her. Or like I always found it to be a kind of at least slightly comedic uh, rapport where we are kind of supposed to think that Kermit's a dick, and so are the other people. Well, I'm specifically because we're talking about Muppet Treasure Island, thinking of both of them. I think they're like going to be. I think Miss Piggy's playing a character. Uh huh. In that movie. Even worse for that, then. Um, But they're both like about to be skewered, I think, or they're both maybe hanging from somewhere, and like the rope or the stick she's hanging from is like breaking a lot faster than Kermit's is. And again, I know she's a pig, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. Just, Succulent. It just hasn't aged well. <laughs> uh, moving on. Was it in the Joker episode that I sang the Robin the Frog song halfway down the stairs? Absolutely. The poem based on the, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. the way yeah. the poo creator. Okay. Yeah. I was trying to remember when it I... It was either that or that last episode that we did. So yeah, Sam, when you listen, if you listen to the I Joker do. episode, you'll hear me sing Robin the Frog it, uh, it may song. Have... Also, I'm so ben, excited. you may have to listen to the episode me and Nick just did on uh, the loved ones because I think it may have been that. I'm not positive. It would have been weird if I just did it for you, though, because we were the only two people. Well, I mean, I would do it for you in private. But... <laughs> uh, in addition to Jack Warden and the other uh, gentlemen I've already named, uh, Joseph Sweeney, Ed Begley, George Vo- uh, sorry, Voskovich, and also Robert Weber. Now that's a man's name right there. Robert Weber. That's good. None so of the binary. Were. <laughs> what was that? I'm sorry? None of the others were. No, they're yeah. all sounded like pussies. Uh, so 12 Angry Men surrounds a jury holdout as he attempts to prevent a miscarriage of injustice by forcing his colleagues to reconsider evidence. It was almost perfect. What a summary. It was almost perfect, if not for that word. All the summaries are written by the people who write reviews about Watchmen, so it's great. It's fantastic. You don't like miscarriage? I I get What do you have against miscarriage? I get the 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 phrase and how it works as a miscarriage of justice. It just it doesn't work. Just It's a weird phrasing. It's a really weird phrasing and it hasn't aged well. It 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 carries it's an object in and of itself more so than the actual description of the film. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it just overpowers that sentence, and really, it just like 
That word stuck out to me too. Right. A little bit too much. Right. I don't. I was like, I don't remember. Many Would you say that Henry Fonda's character performed an abortion of justice? <sighs> no, I would not. Okay. I would not say that. It's a good thing I asked them. Yeah. I, I guess just it would is. not have wanted that to be yeah. implied. All right. Anyway. I'm really glad that we are clearing all this up before the actual exactly. review. Exactly. I yeah. just want to get this all out in the open. Very important. That's great. That's, you know. We're just going over all the evidence. I was going to say it's best to just have like a pre-talk, maybe an early vote. Yeah. Um, in... This isn't going to make it to the real podcast, is it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely not. Is. What? Anyway. <laughs> Did you disagree with me, sir? No. Thanks. That's the right answer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The boy. This is uh, before they had metal detectors. I guess to go to the courthouse. Oh hell yeah! It was a more trusting time. <laughs> I was gonna say. <laughs> well, the, when you're white, this, this <laughs> jur literally brought a knife <laughs> to the, to <laughs> to his jury knife. duty. <laughs> so that was kind of fucked up. Yeah. That's okay. Um. So who wants to go first? Oh wow! Oh, all the hands just flying up at once. Well, I just thought maybe people were going to, like, jump at us, so I didn't want to, but... Well, you know, if nobody says nothing, then everyone just votes, you know, positively, and we all can go to the baseball game, so that's good. Well, I am a hung juror, so... Hey, hey. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. So who's going first? I'll go. Okay. Okay, there we go. Thank you very much. Let's go. Um, (laughs) So the reason I had suggested this one was... um, my boyfriend and I were watching, um, actually, we caught portion of this on TV, um, and he had seen it before, and I had not seen it yet, um, and I was intrigued because just some of the rhetoric that was taking place, um, it was the moment where um, a lot of the gentlemen were starting to switch their, um, to change their minds to mm-hmm. not guilty, um, and it sort of became a, like, I kind of want to see how this plays out now. Um, And I had suggested it as well, just because I wasn't sure how many kind of classics, um, if you will, um, or sort of like black and white films. Um, We, you guys had done. Oh, that's um, been one of our goals of the year. So, and and I know uh, we had talked about it on previous podcasts of like um, kind of, and, and I know Alex and I have had conversations about it too, of, um, what sort of films do we want to expand to um, and things like that. If I've had any like films that I've watched that, you know, we, that are a little bit older or things like mm-hmm. that to bring up. Um, I know I brought up Beetlejuice the one time. Oh, yeah. Um, so a little Classic. bit, a little bit um, aged mm. as well. Um, <laughs> and. Um, it's before I was born. <laughs> oh, no, I was just, I yeah. just don't think Beetlejuice is a very good film, so. We've covered this. so If you want to hear all of our thoughts on that, you should check out our Beetlejuice episode. Go back and listen to the episode. At Film Tank. Yes. (laughs) Thank you for... Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. Anyway, continue. Please continue. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, um, so I um, suggested this film on behalf of him and everything like that, Mm -hmm. Uh, but the... Um, I think that there's a very interesting cultural aspect to this film, um, especially in today's context, and even just bringing it into light in our current times as well. Things have come to light. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, it's a, um, especially when, so it's 
12 white dudes in a room talking about the fate of a man, um, even though the, the film is in black and white, who um, is colored. Yeah. Um, and there's very, for lack of a better term, interesting um, opinions that each of the men hold. Very spicy takes, if you will. Yes, that is the best way to phrase it. Very spicy um, takes. Oh, it's a hot day. I, I mean, they day. shunned a man in the corner because he was being extremely racist. Yeah, you're not supposed to say it out um. loud. <laughs> that was so, the whole thing. That basically he, was. He, he said it out loud, and that's why we're not talking to you. Yeah. Oh, gee. It's impolite. Um. <laughs> yeah, he pretty much had to go like wear a dunce cap in the corner. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. um, he should have put one of those uh, those uh, paper cups on his head. Yeah. Made a makeshift dunce cap. We were talking about the fucking cups for like a good ten minutes. We were. Though. Well, it's you know it is a little unfortunate that they had to use those just terrible little triangle cups. <laughs> what are you supposed to do with those cups? This. You can only hold on to them. You cannot put them Not down. You can anywhere. barely hold on to and them. And again, they don't fit comfortably no. into your hand. The only thing you can do is drink them as fast out. as you can. Oh my can, god, guys, stop and talking about the fucking cups. As fake cone boobs. No, we like, need to is... air this out. Okay. Absolutely. I mean. Again, they're going to fall apart. Why do you think they're so fucking angry? (laughs) These cups are going to fall apart if you let water sit in them for probably more than about 16 seconds. Like, they're they're not made to last. Almost like the verdict that these people are coming to. Slipping through their fingers. Oh, Sam. Um. (laughs) Sam. Way to bring it back. I was going to say. But I, um, I think some of the... The camera angles and the cinematography are interesting, um, especially um, or even beyond that, the blocking that occurs um, and the way that the men are sort of arranged within the room um, and even like in some of the the um, camera shots of the way that they're organized to be able to see very clearly each person. Um Sometimes in like crowd scenes or in group scenes, you often see that someone is a ob- is obstructed somehow. Um, but in in a lot of these scenes, you could see people so well, um, and I kind of kept thinking whether or not that was um, some sort of statement about individuality um, and um, the individuality within opinions and things like that as well. Um, but something else that stuck out was, um, sort of like the profiling, um, shots of, you know, kind of within the frame, it's just the face. Um, and it's very much like a, a a portrait, um, which is a very interesting sort of commentary, I guess, of sort of, um, I kept thinking back to like the office of like interviewing them to know like more about their personal opinion about yeah, the matter. The one guy, and I was joking about it, but he really did look like at least for a couple small milliseconds, like he was like trying to hold back from looking into the camera. So, yes. I will say about that guy though, really quickly, is yeah. that he is technically seated directly across the row from juror number eight. Right. So technically, he does have a reason to look straight across. Consider, no, I just mean as far as like continuity of. So I kind of agree with you in that it's a weird angle because obviously compared to all the other ones, uh, it's they can kind of go at a side or at a glance. But at least there's at least I would say an inner universe reason as to why he'd be looking straight. Oh yeah, it just from the uh, actual 
context of what he was saying at the time. It just came off as a little yeah. preachy. Yeah. But, yeah. Please so, continue. Um, aside from that sort of stuff, I also think that the content is fairly interesting as well, especially the way that you watch um, minds evolve, um, if you will. Um, and the sort of, in some cases, peer pressure of um, opinions uh and it, sort of watching the stakes of determining another man's fate is um a, a lot of times there's difficulty in sort of <coughs> making a decision um or um it is not taken as heavy-handed as it should be sometimes um which i thought was a very interesting take um, within this, especially when you think about the era that this was um, created in, um, both filmed as well as written and performed in, um, but sort of um, kind of taking a step back to, to, I guess, highlight, um, if you will, <laughs> um, some, I don't know what the word is, um, Notable points. Yeah. yeah. Um, th I think that's the best way of putting it. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. Great. That's, that's my overarching hot take for a moment. Okay. okay. Yeah. I'll go next. Already? Yeah. Um, it's been a couple of... One week since you left. Yeah, I was about to say it, too. Then I stopped. Thanks, man. I was going to say, like, Rose in hey. Titanic. It's yeah. been 84 years. Beer and Naked Ladies is, like, my favorite group, so I'm not just doing that randomly. Okay. Now uh, I can attest to that. Yeah. They're one of Nick's favorite groups. We saw them in concert earlier this year. Damn. It yeah. literally happened, and they are a bunch of guys who are... Um, naked. Uh, well, it's a good thing they weren't. They're past their prime. I was going to oh, say yeah. they are no longer in the prime of their career. Oh, that's yeah. fine. But they, really quickly, I just want to say that because everyone shits on them. Mm. Uh, they at least earnestly love what they do and mm. don't really expect much else out of just... Being, you know, very good ladies. That's pretty cool. Yeah, they don't they, have an ego. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah they all look like Kevin McAllister's father. So, damn. Hey, it, on that <laughs> night, comes at you fast. we saw Bare Naked Ladies and Hootie and the Blowfish. And I think you would agree with me that Hootie and the Blowfish had the most embarrassing moment of the Hootie night. and the Blowfish. It was um, a decent concert. But yeah. the ending of their concert when uh, Darius Rucker... Uh, sang or gave a cover of Fight the Power. Yeah. That was uncomfortable. Well, especially we're just talking about That's, this. That makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, just hearing about okay. It okay, first of all, um, is someone <sighs> who has seen Public Enemy actually. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. In concert before, um, and not that that you know, makes it any different, but seeing Chuck D actually perform that right, and then hey. seeing Darius Rucker. Fight the power. <laughs> uh, oh, and, no. And then, you let him cry. Fight the power. And uh, actually, I think it was when that started, and it was it was pretty late in the concert, and we were planning to leave uh, before the encore. It. I was going to say, when they started <laughs> playing that, the fuck out of here. <laughs> there wasn't even really a verbal of anything. Me and Nick just both started walking towards the exit. <laughs> Chugged, and then went, okay, we're good. Yeah. So anyways, unfortunately... 
there were these two for sure baby boomer old white women walking <laughs> in front of us who were dancing and shaking their bootes uh to that performance and that is just so unfortunate so yeah. especially again being you know looking at each other being like yeah fight the power it's like oh have fun back at your ranch and we'll see you later God. Tucson. Okay. <laughs> so, anyway. It's been a couple of years More like since... like Hootie and the No-Fish. It's been a couple of years since I've seen this film. I'm pretty sure I first saw it when I was in high school, and I might have actually, like, read along with a couple of the scenes, like, for one of my theater courses when I was in like, high school. Um, I remember enjoying it from back then, uh, and I really enjoyed it, uh, like, returning to it after many many years it's a impeccably well-written film i think it's a very well-acted film i can't remember the name of the characters but i do know uh their juror designations i mean like the protagonist essentially the protagonist like juror number eight he's awesome uh and juror number three who is basically the last holdout like he gives a really um like powerful antagonistic performance that it just feels like terribly and tragically plausible that somebody would just like hang on to something that bitter just for the I sake like of by the end of it that it's way more personal oh, yeah. and pathetic than it is like shall we say uh, I just hot refuse. button racism yeah like the other like the other yeah. guy who got sent into yeah, the corner yeah. yeah yeah it's it this is a lot more personal than just like their their fucking um like Breitbart like racism <laughs> <laughs> yeah um it's it, what's what's really fascinating about this film to me is that like in the middle of it like well i want to ask uh nick a, a quick question it's like yes would you where would you rank this film among some of your favorite films oh boy well recently i've been kind of stepping away from ranking but it is not necessarily in, a rank but what, right, right, right. what what would you describe but this it is as? in my top tier in the sense that I put it in my list of mm. favorite films of all time I could see that I would say it's in my top 100 yeah for I could, sure I could totally see why this would be one of your favorite films uh, of all time just because it is a a single closed room and yeah, I, this I is feel, the granddaddy of I, all, I feel like much. yeah this epitomizes what is the main appeal of this because it is just a powder keg of like not just people, but also also of ideas, of backgrounds, mm-hmm. of 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 classism. It's this sort of like very heated struggle between not necessarily justice, but due process. The the this sort of mental, emotional, intellectual labor that that due process necessitates versus the sort of like steep easy incline like decline of of groupthink it's like due process versus groupthink like you could it's so easy like it, none of these men actually stopped to think before they voted with the exception of maybe one person who had not necessarily like a a, a open and shut like rebuttal but just had an inkling that like shouldn't this take a little bit longer yeah. should shouldn't shouldn't we think a little bit longer on this before we sentence a person now, to death i will say um i've got to call a little bit of bullshit on his delivery and again i'm not necessarily you're talking like at the beginning when he's trying to lay out like yes. why he would even do yeah that. And, and and i will say that um 
most a real rabble rouser. Well, so obviously he was attempting to sway the room. Yeah, uh, but he's an architect. He's a real Ayn Rand type. No, I don't mean that. Well, does someone does call him out on it in the bathroom when right. he says, "Like, do you know what a soft sell is?" Yeah. So, but he is definitely early on saying, "You know, I don't really think. Um, you know, I I don't necessarily think he's innocent." And then. Just 15 minutes later, I brought this knife. And it's like, wait a minute. Hmm. You brought fucking props to this shit? Like, yeah. uh, clearly he was much more passionate about it than he was letting on. Yeah. So Clearly yeah. he was thinking about this longer but than just the I don't the think anyone would have listened to him if he had came out. I don't either. Blazing. I, don't, I don't either, but I feel like uh, a weird part about the film is I feel like some of his actions at the beginning feel more genuine to me. So it makes it a little confusing that... Yeah. He did have that surprise witness knife in his pocket. I think that by the end of the of the film, it's obviously it's not just him who's arguing it, but mm-hmm. it's like there's a lot of points that would not have come to light and would have like maybe exonerated. Not they don't necessarily exonerate, but they don't. They build up to a a beyond a reasonable doubt um, in the case of this um, young man's like trial. Like, if him actually being at fault for this, like, being guilty. And, th- like, I think about juror number 10 who asks about the glasses, which it seems like such a, a crucial a crucial soft point, an ambient point that you would not, otherwise not have even think, thought of. It's so just interesting to see how these different personalities, like, play off of one another. It's like, especially when you sort of unravel and unspool their their reasonings behind why they're voting the way that they do. Like initially when everybody's voting guilty and be like, Oh, you know, these slum kids and stuff like that. And one person finally takes exception to that. And he's like, wait a minute, I grew up in the fucking slums and I'm just like, well, I'm, you know, it's not personal. It's like, well, I, well, damn, well, I take it personally. Well, like, then, ironically though, what he's saying is technically true because what he means is it's not white. It, you know, <laughs> like, no, I'm just saying, yeah, like yeah, yeah. And that, and that's what becomes very tied up into their, mm-hmm. you know, uh, arguments. So to yeah, speak. it's it, it it's. <sighs> I like this film a lot. I think that it's very well written. I think that, as a product of its time, it also does not necessarily like tackle like the idea of lived experiences and like sort of like the loaded assumptions that come into like those lived experiences. The fact that they're all like either white or light-skinned men. I would say um, the fact that they're all white men is both the best and worst thing about this. Yeah. Because yeah. it genuinely... I'm not just... No, no, no. But no, no, no. Like, yeah, yeah. just to go with that is that it is on one on the one hand kind of an actual unfortunate representation right. of a power right. structure that does exist. And then also, of course... I think inadvertently that is an asset to it. Like, it just shows just how... It's it's something that can totally be criticized as well as kind of works in the film's favor, depending on what you're in. I don't think it was intentional, but I do think that it plays inadvertently to the strengths of, like, what the film is talking about, like, by no fault of itself. To kind of take it even a step further, looking at the jobs that all of those men work, Mm -hmm. um, as compared to where the the court case is coming from mm-hmm. um, and kind of seeing the, the I know one of the gentlemen, I can't remember which one, but he mentions he's a broker. Yeah. Um, you have an architect, you've got, you know, he's an advertiser. Yeah. He's drawing rice pops. And, and you see a lot more white collar. Or it's a white collar, white male representation within that room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's a extraordinarily well done film. Mm -hmm. I think that I really enjoyed like watching it, like even knowing what's going to happen at the end. I was just like, yeah, this is really, I think everybody who went in that room and came out of that room, they'll probably never meet each other again, but they came out maybe just a little bit wiser, if not better for the experience. The more, you know, the more, you know, and you know what? (laughs) That's kind of how I felt after having watched that film. So, yeah, those are my initial thoughts. Yeah. Okay. I very much love this movie. Mm -hmm. It's uh, obviously, as Tucson pointed out, very much right up my alley. It's uh, the whole single setting pressure cooker uh, type structure is my bread and butter. And so obviously this is the granddaddy of all kind of uh, uh, single setting movies or just stories in general Mm -hmm. um and what i really think uh, about this movie that i think is kind of underappreciated in this day and age is that you have to remember that this script started as a teleplay for a television show which was studio one on cbs because during the 50s and 60s uh, 50s in particular one of the most uh, common uh, types of programming on across the networks was live plays, which we're kind of seeing a resurgence of uh, in this day and age, but also exclusively musical, which is weird. It's like it's weird to see a resurgence of something, but also to do the most technically hardest thing of them instead of just starting small with more grounded <laughs> plays or whatnot. But anyway, um, but you had things back in the 50s like Studio One, which this debuted as or Playhouse 90 and whatever and those hosted a just a f- wide variety of amazing uh programs of uh you had people cutting their teeth like Rod Serling of the Twilight Zone fame mm-hmm. and who wrote a great script and other people who both acted and behind the camera it was just like a training ground for just wonderful uh concertos of drama uh, for the American public, and especially to watch it live. And Twelve Angry Men was one of the uh, seminal works uh, Hmm. that got debuted on uh, Studio One. And I think you kind of get that vibe when you watch Cindy Lumet's film adaptation of it. And which is to say that it is a very small film, and I don't just mean that uh, obviously in the fact that it's a single location, but uh, the direction of it is, I would say, very out of the way, because even though there are some really grandiose uh, uh, movements and shots, like the opening uh, when they first go into the jury room, that's an unbroken shot almost of about five to ten minutes where we really get to go around the entire room without cutting to another angle as we get to meet these uh, jurors and the way that they carry themselves before they start to deliberate. Mm-hmm. Um but other than that, it's a mostly, I would say, uh, extremely controlled but meticulous way of presenting this drama um, because it lets the characters and the actors obviously do their bit and it lets these ideas stand for themselves. Um, and I think it's all the better for that. And it's actually one of the better examples. There's a, um, a movie called Marty, which it's funny because 12 Angry Men did not win. I don't even know if it was not winning, but it definitely didn't win. Uh, best picture uh, from the Oscars the year it was, uh, you know, whatever. But another movie that 
did win Best Picture is actually not as good as its teleplay debut from uh, Playhouse 90, which is Marty. And the movie starred, I want to say, Ernest Borgnine and the... uh, I forget who played the original in the teleplay, but that was a much better version of uh, that story, so to speak. Whereas Sidney Lumet kind of understood exactly what the story was and how to stretch it out to a 90-minute uh, feature, so to speak, because these programs were generally about 50 minutes with advertisements and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I love about this particular incarnation of 12 Angry Men is that it doesn't really betray its roots in television. We clearly get what would be considered commercial breaks uh, when we have these interludes, when the uh, you know the people go or the men go to the bathroom or kind of take a moment in between deliberating and. Those are actually often the most telling moments of this movie. There's a great scene toward the end where I think Jack Warden's character turns the fan on and he realizes that he could have turned the fan on the entire time, but because the electrical switch for the lights had not been switched, uh, there was no electricity running. And it's at that moment where he's more gobsmacked and delighted that he's figured this out uh, that you kind of realize that the entire justice system rests upon... Human a, beings, a bunch of fucking idiots. Yeah. You know, and yeah. that's yeah, you know, and and that's how disturbing this whole thing is, and and yet we don't get those kind of passive moments in the teleplay. So this is one of those instances in which I think moving to the feature, uh, to the silver screen, totally benefited this story. Yeah. Um, even though I can understand why someone wouldn't want this drawn out because it's kind of a you know simple story or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say at the end of the day uh, that I. I absolutely love this movie. I love this story. I love these characters, at least in the way that they uh, battle for their ideals and whatnot. And the thing that I don't get hung up on, which I don't blame someone for, but I also just don't really buy into, is the idea that, like, at the end of the day, like, Henry Fonda's character, juror number eight, obviously he's on a crusade of trying to sway the juries and whatnot to... Give this another look and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And if we just go by common sense, like, we can ask ourselves, like, is that an actual worthwhile cause if it actually kind of does seem like the evidence piles up against us? And I'm not trying to get into— I mean, into... that question was even floated in the restroom where it's just like, well, what if you go to all this trouble to exonerate this kid and it turns mm-hmm. out he actually did it? Yeah, no, and right. I think it's a worthwhile question, though. Like, even after the movie ends, like, I don't yeah. personally subscribe to the idea that— once the movie ends, justice was served. I think when the movie ends, it's kind of uncomfortably ambiguous because we're not given an answer and we are left with the idea that even something as well-meaning as this kind of crusade Well, is... I mean, I, if I can use a really poor analogy... Yeah. Um, if Please you... use a poor one, though. Not a good one. Thanks. That's to be very bad. Okay, it is. Um, so, anyways, I believe you. It, thank you. Uh, if you watch uh, the NFL, uh, mostly, I mean, there's other sports that have uh, reviews for plays that are questionable. Yes, and there are two, or there are actually three possible outcomes. There are the call um, um, stands reverses. Yeah, I mean, the call. Well, I guess there's two outcomes. Sorry, oh. the call. No wait, there's three. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm I would I should should have just stick with me, but I was kind of gotten all flubbed up there. Anyways, Threw so the brick there, in the air. There are th- thanks. There are three possible outcomes. 
the call is confirmed, the call stands, uh, or the call is overturned. Hmm. So um, a lot of times, and in this case, I feel like there's nobody in this uh, story that is going out of their way to say that they know for sure that this kid is innocent. Can you they're really saying that they're Sorry. No, no, I'm just saying so yeah. that way. If someone's not a sports fan, yeah, what would be the difference between the call stands and the call is confirmed? So if a call is confirmed, uh, that means that they are, without a shadow of a doubt, saying that that is exactly how it happened. Okay, I get If you. a call stands, there's no for sure evidence one way or the other but that was the way it was called on the field yeah like we'll let you have your judgment but we're not changing things right we're not changing it because we're not for sure and then if it's overturned it's the other way just wanted to make sure i mean at least my reading of it in in the way that this progresses through in the way the you know legal system is supposed to work uh you know they're saying that they have reasonable doubt that he is not the killer. Uh, and, and I feel like that is something that is, is weirdly hard to really get a grasp around, especially in this film, is that, you know, the the eighth juror is seems to be almost at times, especially early in the film, cheerleading on this idea that he is not guilty um, but I feel like if you really watch the way he describes and makes his argument, uh, at no point I feel like is he really, you know, passionately saying this person is definitely not guilty. Uh, he's saying, um, I don't feel comfortable with this because a lot of this evidence is not good. Yeah. So. No, and I think that works uh, for me at least towards its benefit because yeah. at least like you had brought up the knife thing and mm-hmm. for me when I watched this when I was younger like the knife thing was one of my favorite twists in a movie which is not to say that it's like a earth shattering twist of like it changes everything you think or anything like that but you brought the, a knife to a logic fight. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But the idea of it that you know I just love the visualization of it, the literal switch uh, blade aspect of it. Yeah, switch blades are cool. It it is in that moment, um, and when he you know whips it out, sticks it in the uh, hey. table. Yeah, you're fucking disgusting. Um, when he sticks it in the table, and and literally an entire argument is kind of blown up, considering the fact that the argument hinges on uh, specificity and mm-hmm. uniqueness. And yeah. I love the idea that that's reasonable doubt in a nutshell, you know, and. Mm-hmm. Um, so the argument, in my opinion, is extremely foolproof, uh, just within a nutshell of what he's trying to prove in that moment. Yeah. Um, so I loved that moment completely. Um, but what I like about that moment and what I would say about the, uh, the, the movie in general is that, as I had mentioned before, because it has its roots in the teleplay business with right. uh, Studio One and whatnot, that what I think the reason why I think 12 Angry Men age as well like obviously in some respects it might not as far as like the the the, the rhetoric surrounding the yeah. racism or whatever mm-hmm. but just the general ideas at play is that i always found this to be an extremely abstract drama about the legal system mm-hmm. and that while there are some great moments of i would say little moments of 
condemning the the legal system in general, whether whether it's uh like I love what at one point some guy basically says like you already had a trial like you know what's the like well no this was part of the trial so <laughs> the idea that you think the trial is over because it's you know you're now deliberating that makes no sense and, and yet I do think that is an actual common misconception of the jury's you know uh, purpose or whatever but while I agree that there are moments like that or even the slight dig at the idea of like public defenders of you know lawyers who maybe just want to get over with their case or whatever um in general i find this to be fascinating because i think it's a wonderful abstract piece of conflicting ideals when it comes to uh moral and legal uh debates and whatnot and um i i think for that reason alone is why whatever the outcome is or whatever these uh gentlemen land on it never really bothers me whether the person did it or not because i find this more fascinating as a uh philosophical debate about the merits of a human being that never enters the equation of the conversation and i and i love that that in and of itself is probably the ultimate failure of our justice system which is not to say that he obviously never gets to have his say but he is literally, as we see, shunned from that conversation that will actually decide his fate. And while I'm not saying I can come up with a better system, right. uh, there's something incredibly invaluable about, uh, or valuable about that in in a, in and of itself. And I think that's ultimately where this film's strength lies. And I absolutely love the crosstalk between all of them. And as we had mentioned earlier, with. Um, the one juror number three and mm-hmm. how by the end it's not even that he's the most racist because he's not no. <laughs> he's, he's up there but oh he's there um but he just won't say it out loud no yeah but it's more of his I'm personal just saying what everybody else is thinking <laughs> but it's more of his personal demons that are blinding him uh to uh, what's going on here and the idea that that is both something that's kind of sympathetic and the way that you can at least kind of take pity on him mm-hmm. uh but also incredibly uh, disheartening that that can be uh, a factor in somebody's, uh, you know, livelihood. That man could manifest in any courtroom of any jury. Yeah. Even your trial. Uh, you joke, but there's actually a great little three-issue arc in Tom King's run where Batman does do jury duty. Uh, I should say Bruce Wayne does. Yeah. And he actually... There would be some if it was Batman. Yeah. He's just there with the cape. Oh, we're and back! It, and he's got, he's got like a suit on. Am I the only one? Yeah. yeah no, I okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, but no, really quickly though, Bruce Wayne does do uh, jury duty. I can't remember if it's, if it's, I think it's Penguin, where he's basically he knows the answer to the case because he was basically there or whatever. But he's defending Oswald Gobblepot because he's pulling oh. a juror number eight because he's like, well, how do you guys know that he didn't do that or wow. you know whatever? Anyway, it's a great three issue arc. I love oh, it. I would like to read that. So. Um, there was another film, actually, that I was thinking about a lot. Let's talk uh, about that one okay. instead. Anyways, uh, and it was a film that I watched for the first time. It was either last year or the year prior. Jupiter Ascending? You're, you're just saying names Close. now. Yeah. Uh, and it is interesting that Nick brought up uh, the idea of our legal system and the film that I am thinking about. Because the film I'm thinking about is the very bizarre, and I know it's based again on this on a stage uh, production, but a very bizarre musical, which is 1776. <laughs> um, yeah. So the interesting thing about that, and um, very much 
uh, almost the exact same scenario plays out uh, where at the very beginning of the film, everyone is against the idea of a revolutionary war. And by the end of the film, it is unanimous that we are going to go. Jordan Raid is such a John Adams. I was... <laughs> God. So, uh, anyways, it is, I think... A, well, that's a much different film because there's a lot of things happening there that are just extraordinarily factually inaccurate. As these guys are like literally skipping around town with their <laughs> arms in arms together, just being like, oh, 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 let's go find him to write the Declaration of Independence. And they're like, nope, wow, that's that uh... good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Whew. But um, at the same time, just the idea of what you were just bringing up, Nick, of a bunch of white guys or a, a bunch of whoever, a small amount of people deciding uh, extreme important situations, whether it's an entire nation or it's one person. Um, the idea of other people being the deciding factor in the fate of whatever is going on is pretty fascinating. And uh, that was just a two-film comparison that I was having throughout, is I thought there were a lot of little similarities that are, you know, just in terms of structure. But uh, this particular film, uh, this was the first time that I've actually seen this version. Uh, and I thought it was, as uh, everyone else on the podcast uh, does, I thought it was quite good. Uh, one of the things I think that I really gravitated towards in this film uh, was... The cinematography was the first and foremost, I thought, um, just because trying to show emotions um, through different shots and different close-ups and different viewpoints, uh, I thought was super fascinating. Um, and even if like you get like the weird close-up right on somebody's face uh, and it's turned in a certain way... Also, too, the way that the camera was able to capture uh, just sort of the almost like hawk eyes that are coming from people when certain members of the jury are speaking and they are saying some shit that they are not down with and they're just looking at it. And I'm like, mm-mm, better not talk about him like that because that's racist. Uh, I, I just thought that was something that really made it easy to bring myself into the story uh, and also just get so much more out of this film than is just the words that are being said throughout the different characters throughout. Obviously, the performances here are all for, across the board pretty solid, uh, and some of them are very, very good. Uh, obviously, Henry Fonda is great. Um, Juror, the guy who plays Juror number 4, who is probably the most sane person on the guilty yeah, side. Yeah, he's, uh, he's E.G. Marshall, right? I believe, I believe so. so. Yeah, because he's, he's the, the one. one with the glasses. Yes. And I had mentioned while we were watching that that he originated the role of Willie Loman on uh, Broadway yes. uh, with uh, Alia Kazan directing the first production of uh, Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman, which is crazy to me because that would be amazing to watch. I I would I would I would third that. Uh, yeah. Toussaint. Fourth. There we go. Whoa! <laughs> I fifth. Unanimous. The eyes have it. Uh, well, I thought he was great, and I thought that character was also great, because um, even though, and, and this is really how I feel about our current political system, so that's great. Um, we live in a society, man. Yeah. Uh, 
I feel like there are a lot of times in real public debate and real life scenarios, as long as you come with actual analysis and, and actual real thought, I mean, there are people who could make good arguments for real things. And a lot of things that he was saying throughout this film were seemed logical and seemed yep. plausible. And there's a reason why any reasonable man or woman could think exactly what he's saying sounds legit. Um, but the idea of just having real conversation about situations like this and that it isn't, it shouldn't even necessarily be just because a man's life is hanging the balance. Like it should be a lot of situations in life in general, or even, you know, legal situations or uh, life decisions, whether it's deciding to get married or deciding if you want to live with somebody or deciding if you want to purchase a home, like you should actually think about these type of things and versus not at all. Well, I mean, a lot of our current materialistic and capitalistic society is based on the idea that you shouldn't think about things. You should just pull out your card and I'm not saying that there aren't situations when impulse buys are bad or good yeah. because I impulse buy things a lot. But yeah. and again, when it's coming down to a certain measure of reason, Criterion Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah, you know, when, when it's coming to making like actual decisions that affect your and others' lives, like you actually should think about this shit. Oh know? yeah, um, but and that's hard. Yeah. That is correct. That's the point. Yes. Yeah, I know. Um, I'm being facetious. You know, we're, we, we are evolved humans. Like, this is supposed to be hard. You're not just supposed to sit there and click like on somebody's bullshit marathon on Facebook. Like, so, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I will say, just to add to that, yeah. or do you want to finish or do you want no, to go uh, the, there was only one more thing okay. that I really you wanted to first. mention first, uh, and that was... Uh, another comparison, and it's not exact one-to-one, um, but I really thought about this film in addition to 1776 early on, and it was because of the idea of it being the hottest day and that everybody's sweating, and that yeah, is Spike right. Lee's Do the Right Thing. I was thinking of that, yeah, too. I yeah. was Before we watched it, I was, or at least when we started, I was about to say, this is like if Do the Right Thing started, or not started, but took place in one room and it didn't let the black people in the room. <laughs> pretty much it um uh, and i i've got to say a lot of a lot there's of there's only one room a lot of the it, it is interesting because a lot of the uh dismissive arguments that are made from the guilty party jurors who are not uh death of a salesman glasses man uh are really just that same old shit yeah. Uh, that we hear time and time again and do the right thing, which is like, you know, they just don't belong here. They're kind of or... like the John Turturro of, oh, yeah. of that movie yep. where they've heard these piece, you know, these talking points or whatever, and mm -hmm. they kind of buy into it, but they don't really understand why they do. And so they say it, and then logic comes around. And now, obviously, not all of them are necessarily swayed by that. For example, I think the old guy, even though he's shamed <laughs> into the corner, I don't know that he somehow becomes not a racist. 
but I think he's his voice is deafened to the point where it, it becomes nonsense. Well, the other thing, we discussed groupthink a little bit earlier, but you have the other side of the coin of that, where the whole room is now turned against him, mm-hmm. and now he's pretty much turned into little burned-up Voldemort in <laughs> the second Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, where he's just below a little bench in King Cross Station, just just <laughs> looking like it's not going too hot. And yeah, um, yeah. So that 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 whole that whole way that situation plays out is actually really weird because he just kind of just without a problem just walks over to that little side table and just no problem just walks right over there and just stares it to the wall. It doesn't say anything for the rest except for like kind of sheepishly be like not not guilty. No, <laughs> see that's where I and I'm completely with you, and that's where I think that this has its roots in that teleplay vibe which is very abstract um really quickly there's another program uh, there was another drama i can't remember the name of it but it's got america in the title but there was uh that aired on uh studio one where a classroom is the setting it's very much like 12 angry men in the sense that it's a one i mean most of them are one room but uh especially like that where a bunch of uh, p- townspeople gather in the town's school, and they get in there, and an act of violence has occurred just basically moments before mm. uh, the, the teleplay starts, and they all discuss it and try to come up with the repercussions for what should happen. And it's very much like 12 Angry Men in the sense that we don't know the specific event that transpired, or at least the facts surrounding it. But it is basically, it is a lynch mob mentality of, like, if I heard this happen, then therefore this is what must, you know, happen in reaction to it. And it kind of unspooled, and it kind of turns into, like, the monsters are due on Maple Street from the Twilight Zone, where they're almost all wrong, in, in a sense, because they don't have the facts, and their their emotional testimony has no bearing on what may or may not have happened or whatever. So I kind of, even in this movie, uh, shall we say, adaptation of it, it, like, that's the staging of that. I feel like that's more metaphorical than it is a literal. Now, which is not to say that it's, it didn't happen or anything like that, but mm-hmm. that's the mode in which I very much enjoy this representation of this story. Yeah. So as we, we go into uh, more of a, a discussion here, as you know, just said, it's good for people to discuss things. Um, hey. Yeah. Uh, I will say that I um, can't remember what I was going to say. Oh, boy. I, I, had, it, I had it right there. Do you want me to really quickly go off of the thing that I was going to say? Yeah. Okay. So why don't you just go ahead and just... <laughs> so one thing you had mentioned, Alex, okay. was the uh, the idea of groupthink and whatnot. Oh, yeah. And actually, I think that's one of the best things that has really aged well about this movie because I was kind of scared by how much I saw myself in this film, which is... Uh, I've never been on a jury, but... I, f- confession, I get all my news from Twitter. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't. Damn. But I do. Damn. I know. Uh, and I, I mean that both part. as a oh, mix of actual... <laughs> I, I mean that both as both a, a mix of actual uh, outlets, you know, uh, publishing headlines, but also the editorializing tweets that... Usually I, I find these... 
I, I see a long list of tweets uh, from random people that I follow, and if I follow them, that means that I must agree with them on some subconscious level. Twitter is like an RSS feed, only with more egos and worse. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And and here's the thing, though, is that I'm surprised, and, and I watch a movie like this, and it really reminds me of how it's just an echo chamber for my own thoughts, which is that I see people uh, tweeting about stories that I haven't even actually read yet. Usually that's how I find out about news stories. Mm. That I, I go, okay, wait, what are people tweeting about? Okay, I need to find the, the original, you know, whatever. Then I read it, but I've already read the tweets in which they're reacting to. And I'll admit on this podcast that when I read their reactions, even before I get there, I'm already probably subconsciously agreeing with them. You know, it's not like I'm reading them and going, well, I, I disagree. There's no way this can be true. Like, I've already cultivated a world in which, you know, I'm only getting uh, my news from a, uh, a stream of sources that I already admire and respect in some way. And obviously, while this is not the exact same case, I think this is a good kind of metaphorical representation of the way groupthink happens, which is that, it, you know, it only takes one person to say something that you can kind of see the logic in before you start to doubt everything you think and therefore then start to follow that uh, down the rabbit hole and, and only see that as the truth. Because you have a, a room full of men, besides juror number eight, who see a trial and see the evidence presented. And I do think the evidence, like before the deliberations happen, do point out a guilty man. I do think the defense lawyer failed, and I think the prosecutor won, so to speak, and and painted a case of a guy who, quote-unquote, clearly murdered his father. Um, so of course I would, you know, myself probably, I would see that I would agree with it. And then I go into a room and a guy is like, well, I could have the same knife as that guy. And then that to me felt like me reading a tweet about a news story where I was like, yeah, he could have a knife like that. Therefore the liberal in me has to give him up. You know, like I, it's just, it's just this weird, I don't know, um, kind of acknowledgement that, we're all kind of insane on the internet, myself included. And um, oh yeah, I just lean into it, buddy. Oh yeah, and so That's I what are for. I think that part <laughs> of this movie True. has completely aged well. If you kind of carried over to that kind of, I would say, what the modern day equivalent of that, which is that I feel like Twitter or just social media in general is a juror deliberation of sorts. Like it is a bunch of people who. Bring their own personal biases to, I mean, you know, we, we have juror number three who brings his own personal story or whatever. We all bring our own personal stories, our our own personal uh, subconscious racial tics or maybe conscious racial tics uh, and whatnot. And then we hear the people we trust and or at, at the very least uh, tolerate <laughs> uh, speak on subjects that we know nothing about. And then we take them at their word and whatnot. And we never truly carve a path for our own. And I, I think that's ultimately what I love about this movie is that at the end of the day, even if I pretty much am wholeheartedly agreeing with Juror number eight, I also don't know that that's the way to justice because by the end, when he's actually going off on uh, Juror number three, I actually, my sympathy starts to gravitate towards juror number three not so much for his ideas or point of view (laughs) but at a certain point he's not affording juror uh, juror number three 
the same courtesy that he was essentially asking everybody at the beginning of, of this deliberation because mm-hmm. he's now saying, well, now you have to prove yourself to all of us. And it's like, well, you didn't really do that to everybody else. You essentially just, you know, put that little worm in everybody's brain and let mm-hmm. it spread. And so the idea that somehow, whether I might obviously disagree with juror number three, what the just because you disagree with him does not mean that, and it sounds bad, but I agree with his line that it says he's entitled to his own opinion. I mean, that is what our justice system is based on. So whatever his faults are, he's not necessarily doing anything wrong. That's in a good enough, point. I in of that uh, moment. Like, juror number eight didn't have to, like, fully articulate his own stances in that regard, and, like, neither did. I mean, I guess it's it's more of, like, framed as, like, have after having actually like deliberated and broken apart these arguments and actually like every single excuse that he has made up to this point has been sort of like pushed to the wayside what what is actually left to actually like condemn this person well to and that's death. the thing though though is that here's the thing is if he is truly a man of justice so to speak at least within this league legal system um if after all that there's still a lone holdout vote you know is it more justice to lean on him and try to persuade him against all out like if he didn't buy into everything that was presented to him even if for bullshit reasons as we kind of learn to uh believe or whatever uh is is he not going against his own word of like just trying to deliberate if he's essentially trying to say, well, why don't you agree with the 11 one of us? Um, because at the end of the day, wouldn't he rather have a hung jury if that is more representative of the actual liberation that took place? I guess I see what you're saying. I think that more of like juror number eight's like abrasiveness towards the end or more aggressiveness like towards the stance of like the holdout of like he just looks like he's three. going in for the kill for ju- for juror number three I think it's more of just a frustration with otherwise like bullheaded obstinance in the face of like so much that has been like if 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 it's enough to like move anybody else in the room to doubt that like what exactly is left to like what what it what it what it what what is actually left to like retain this sort of like heavy handed like no this is absolutely what it is without a shadow of doubt like what is the shadow of doubt then in this situation? well and that's why when i look at a movie like this i i watch it and i'm like all in a basically an agreement with jordan marine right and yeah I go through the motions and i'm like yep everything you say makes sense and then at the end of the movie i'm like this is how oj got off <laughs> no but like like it's that's a, it's a very fair that's point. how the yeah. system yeah. works towards that end goal. We, you know we, what I mean? We, we peel back the layers of the onion and yeah. find some way to say, well, this could be not what he did. And yeah. it's like, well, yeah, but he also fucking did it. Yeah. So. You, insert, but, you yeah. insert a little rhyme and a little nursery rhyme into their, but, their brains and but, it just but, like, it but lives it, like a worm. I'm not, because as time has gone on, it's in... It, it, this is not, you know, twelve dudes in a room for, uh, you know, four hours or whatever it was. I mean, as time has gone on, it, 
the court of public opinion on OJ has been that he fucking did it. Well, and the, I would say the court of public opinion was that even the day yeah. of. I mean, as far as the the public watching the trial mm-hmm. versus the public who was in the trial. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, um, which is, I mean, that's a whole other bag of worms yeah. if you wanted to go yeah. down that route. Because, but I think that's how it yeah. happens. It's it's yeah. What I think is what's most inspiring about this movie is that it almost suggests that, you know, it doesn't matter what, you know, the majority says. All it takes is one person to stand yeah. up for what's right. But the insidious but the other op- side right. of it that coin is like, okay, but it, if that is all it takes, then it means that we are then, once again, only beholden to one person's perspective of justice, which means that the system we have is fucked. Well, uh, <laughs> I will say there are a couple jurors here um, that, you know, everybody everybody gets a vote, and welcome to our election system. Um, and I'm not saying it's wrong, and I'm not saying... Our, well, one of them uh, makes that joke, too. Uh, well, also, literally, before but, they do their preliminary vote, they're like, oh, yeah, we should elect him senator, which yeah. I actually thought was pretty good. Um, so there are two uh, jurors here that are, first, uh, the one played by Jack Warden, who literally does not have an opinion one way or the other, because he really just doesn't want to be there. Uh, and he well, gets... He wants to go to a ball game. Okay, then... And He's got tickets burning a hole in his pocket. Burning a hole in his pocket. Um, he wears a little pork pie hat. <laughs> he makes jokes all the time. But He looks like the guy from he, Batman. He's got a striped suit with a matching hat. He's got a zoot suit on. When, 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 pressed, <laughs> yes. when pressed by the other juror, um, his initial response is, I don't need to tell you, which was bullshit. And his second response when pressed again... Uh, he sounded like Sarah Palin during her interview with Katie Couric, mm-hmm. where she was just like, oh, yeah, I read all those newspapers. Which one? All of them. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. You clearly have no I idea what the, the fuck you're talking about. my house. Yeah. You clearly <laughs> have no idea what you're talking about. That's great. And it's becoming painfully obvious. So the other uh, character in here who right off the bat, I was like, oh, boy. You're part of the problem why we're in this situation right now, you fucker. Um, this gentleman, the one who does, uh, which I think is interesting, the advertising guy, was talking about how happy he was that he got to be in a murder trial because, boy, howdy, this is way more exciting than some bank robber. That the and guy was, who kept taking his glasses on yeah. and off? Yeah. Okay, yeah. During 12. Yes. And I'm sorry. Who actually does, like Toussaint pointed out during our viewing, look like Don Draper. It's kind of creepy. Yeah. yeah. That is such a gross point of view for someone who gets called a jury duty of being... And yet, probably a common one. Yeah, and you yeah. can tell all the boys at the back of the firm is like, hey, I was on yeah. a jury. I mean, when that... we get called to jury duty, we all think of it as yeah. a chore. Mm-hmm. But I would I would be lying if I probably would say the opposite, Like if I, which I've never been. But if I was called for jury duty and I was called for like tax evasion versus I was called for a murder trial, I would probably be slightly more passionate about deliberating. But that is such a... I don't know what I would announce that. Weirdly enough, I completely understand because it's something that, while it's a very heavy decision to be a part of, at the same time... It's your civic duty. Yeah. Um, I think there's something that... 
I think passionate is is the key word that you use that you would become more passionate about it you know do I want people taking money out of the you know away from me no um but do I completely understand tax evasion absolutely not um I know I would not be part of Although the other side of that Um, coin is if you go to a tax evasion, you could end up putting gangsters away who actually did kill people. That's true. (laughs) I I guess my opinion on what I'm I'm getting at is that it's just such a weird and kind of icky feeling to me to say that you feel stimulated – by the fact that you get to be part of a murder trial as opposed to any other possible trial that you could be called to be part of and that that is doing it for you. Hey man, don't kink shame. Uh yeah. But that but that why like you want to be part of a, a group that is either going to decide to send a man to the electric chair or send him away from the electric chair into back to his freedom. And yeah, it is obviously if you just randomly or not randomly get picked to do that, then that is just part of what your actual civic duty is. But to just announce that, yes, I would like to watch Fox news and I would like to see coverage in the war field. And yes, I would like my steak medium rare and I would like a fucking American flag in it. I don't know. There's just, uh, it's just, it just, eh. as soon as I heard it, I wanted to vomit in my mouth and swallow it. Yeah. It was, ugh. That's and that's all- your right <laughs> as an American. That's your right to swallow that vomit. Ah, uh, yes. We live in a society. <laughs> yeah, we certainly do. Unfortunately, sometimes. Um, it do be like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Nick, you brought up the uh, the idea of the uh, having to turn the electricity on to get the fan to work, uh, which I thought was uh, very interesting because, mm-hmm. boy, there's just not a lot of attention to detail made to this room. Uh, and, and uh, I don't know. It just maybe that's just one of those things that that was you know seventy years ago, sixty five years ago. So maybe that's just how it was then, and was something that they just didn't even consider because it was daylight out. But uh, watching it now, I guess my opinion was, uh, oh boy, the people who uh, designed this whole system are <laughs> just not really caring. I would say definitely it's both a. a- an indictment of the legal system in general, which mm. is that, you know, you shove jury members in a room uh, or you sequester them if it's a famous trial or whatever, and you really don't think about their livelihood and, what you know, what it takes to actually... Well, who has tickets to a ball game? Yeah. <laughs> um, but also I would say that that's another moment in which the abstract becomes a literal moment of, you know, uh, manifesting... Uh, uh, the shortcomings of the system, so to speak. But I, I would definitely say that I totally buy it, too, especially for 60, 70 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, that's one of my favorite moments of all. And I especially love, too, that not only does he go through the motions of figuring it out, but then he also treats it like a glib joke because he's then throwing uh, little paper mashed-up balls against it, which only then end up and uh, hitting the old man who – the the non-racist old man. I uh, have to clarify, there's, there's two. multiple old Ooh, yeah. men in and there. And also, too, um, it was the recurring theme throughout the uh, viewing of this 
that different people would mention that they thought that old man was dead. Yeah. Uh, is that uh, he continuously was recurring theme in our over. living room? You mean? Yes. Yes. Oh, not yeah. in the actual. Film. I just want to oh, point no. out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we made a lot of jokes at his uh, Wilbur. Wilbur. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry, Jur Nine. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I, I kind of love that uh, almost visual motif uh, in which after the Jack Warden character starts the fan, sits down, and he's throwing the the balls, the paper balls up at the fan, and it and it hits the old guy or whatever, and he's not looking at what he's doing, and I think that is the trajectory of the justice system in a, in a way when it comes to the jury, which is that you can. You know, you you throw something and you hope that it lands in the right answer, but in reality, it's a wild shot, and you may end up hitting someone who's innocent. Well, and it's very, I, I think, to kind of piggyback off of that, it's short-sighted. Mm-hmm. For, for as much as you can't, and, and I think, I, I guess some of the blocking plays, plays a good part in this, that you can see what you're doing, and you know what you're doing initially but that that final outcome that that actually comes from throwing the ball behind your back you can't see it once it's past you know your your um perception um and you don't know where it's going um and i think sometimes to to kind of bring it to like modern issues of you know there are men who have been um you know tried and they've received a you know a guilty verdict from the jury and it turns out that like you know 10 years later it looks like mm, guy's not guilty at all DNA um, and whatnot, it, yeah exactly that he's been exonerated mm-hmm. um and, and granted that's not every case and no, but it's a thing but and it if it exists truly it, it's a that... thing and and it's interesting too because you also think i think the very final scene of them all like going down the courthouse steps um they are all going off to their own lives. Mm-hmm. Um, they are very that that moment in the in the um, in, de- in the deliberating room is such a like pinprick in their lives, despite the fact that it was such a momentous moment for another individual. And yet here they are, you know, the jurors um, eight and nine. They're like, oh, by the way, my name is Davis. By the way, my name's this. And then they just simply part ways, and that's it. And I think Toussaint had mentioned it, that they're all in this room, and the chances of them ever crossing paths again is... Ex- Very marginal. And yeah. And even then, would they Extremely even marginal. recognize them? Yeah. Um, and I think there's something to be said about that, too, of there's these weird... I guess there's this weird um, kind of etherealness um about the about the justice system sometimes of that it exists for that moment in time when it's so big and and it's meant to have a bigger deal made of it but we forget that that happened most times unless Mm -hmm. it's a case like oj's where (laughs) nobody ever forgets well and and (laughs) to go along with that of this just being just another case and i mean even if maybe the he had his own thoughts on it so that was leading to his um poor presentation um but i made a comment when we started watching this film that the judge actually looked like he could give no fucks about this case at all 
And not even about the case, but just about doing his Everything. job. Uh, he was kind of like reading like, well, the this is a really big decision for you. And you've got on this side and this side and time's up and go in there. <laughs> it's like this guy is like... Uh, just not well, happy everything <laughs> about his body language suggested that he was just done for the day and you know what it's just another you know uh, it's, it's another brick case. in the wall yes or which only i would say <laughs> I makes say it no bedpost and i was like mm, maybe not the right one this time yeah <laughs> But I would say the judge's uh, body language and whatnot only makes it even more abundant as to, like, it's no wonder why this entire jury room is pretty much over this case. Like, even them, uh, or I should say they, are victims of this system before they walk into the room. Well, uh, so two things I'll mention. Uh, One, I think the judge, who's probably sat on a number of cases, obviously not all of them murder cases, but just cases in general, Obviously has his own opinion, and now, you know, we, we have female judges, have her own opinion, whatever, but uh, this judge seems pretty decided, and probably has seen cases like this before, um, that who knows if he's really actually considering, could the man walk all there? betting on a juror number eight in the room. <laughs> no. Every time. Well, uh, he... Juror number eight! I'll get you! Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming when the verdict is read, uh, and we don't get obviously get to see it here, I'm assuming that he may per- perked up a little bit when they read not guilty and be like, oh! Well, technically, <laughs> in our legal system, we have that very weird tradition of the foreman has to write it down and give it to the judge so he gets to know the verdict. <laughs> Before the jury reads it, it which ruins the surprise. I always feel like it's a weird tradition yes. or whatever, because I'm sure there's some weird legal reason for it. But at the end of the day, I'm just like, why should I mean, if the whole point is that they're supposed to deliberate? I feel like they should I, have the, f- may, the. I don't know. Maybe it's like really just like a bad way to look at. It, but I feel like if the judge really doesn't agree with, be like. No, I, nope. I actually did read that that's essentially <laughs> what can happen, and it doesn't really ever happen. But that there is—I was going to say—he can invoke some kind of like no, go deliberate more or something like yeah. that. But that's bullshit in and of itself. Because well, why right. should they have that power? I mean, they're—you um, picked the ten, or sorry, the twelve yeah. uh, jurors, and they've decided whether it took them five minutes or five days. Um, yeah, that, yeah, that judge part, that was, that was very intriguing to me just because, yeah, not really, uh, not caring Mm -mm. too much about his job. I want to make two comments really Mm -hmm. quickly about Mm -hmm. the staging of, uh, well, this movie, but, uh, specifically over by the bathrooms, two things. One, we mentioned the moment in which Jack Warden's character turns on the fan and throws the paper balls. Uh, I do want to point out that besides the fact that I, I like that moment uh, for the kind of the way that that maybe highlights the justice system and whatever, it's also just a great character moment because it does kind of almost unequivocally state that he's still preoccupied even at that moment with baseball. Yeah. No. And that even in that subconscious moment, he's still just wanting to throw a ball around and not really think about the case, which I love. Yeah. Um, he's like a little kid. Yeah. He's like yeah. a little kid in a grown man suit. Yeah. And two, uh, the other moment is that I want to say that um, 
What I love about the uh, production design of this room, uh, which obviously is sparse, so it's not so much that so much thought went into it, but I do think there was a reason for every angle as, mm-hmm. as to what you can capture and whatnot. And one thing I loved about this is that almost every time we see a person go into the bathroom, we're watching it from an angle in which you can see both doors, the men and the women, and the women's doors obviously never used. And I think that's a conscious decision to always visualize that there is a one-way track going on. Uh, while I obviously think that 12 Angry Men may be dated for its protagonist, I don't necessarily think that Sidney Lumet was unconscious of the kind of white patriarchal system at play here, and I do think, much like the victim of this piece, possibly at least, uh, with the person on you know death row or whatever, um, that women are at least being acknowledged as someone who's being shut out of the conversation in the same way that uh, the own, uh, the person on trial is in, in a way so i love the fact that we always see the men in the women's bathroom in plain sight every time the men's bathroom door is used if i can uh <laughs> bring something to that please um it's not necessarily just about the men in the women's room and the blocking of that mm-hmm. uh, but really the only time in this film that we get any mention of a woman is when we're talking about the woman who is seeing uh, um, yes, and that, of course, she... eyewitness testimony that basically is like quote unquote the the clincher of yeah. the entire That's case. That's what for some really sways yeah. the majority of the room that was holding on for dear life to what the most important was that she saw it, um, and you know the the obvious literal that she just made a mistake and saw something that she thought she didn't and also too i mean we talked there's uh it's a small mention of it but the idea of um you know it's just taken word for word that this is what she told authorities especially in this era i'm sure now ma'am you saw this right you saw that they um i think i did we're gonna write down that you saw him being stabbed by this particular person And when you come in wear your glasses yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and that's the other thing, too. That's really the only comment, though, we really hear about her is that, you know, you know what? She's 45. She wants to look 35. And it's yeah. like, fuck. I like how they yeah. keep basically saying that she's an old woman. And then later on in the movie, <laughs> yeah. they say she's 45. And I'm like, oh, boy. Yeah. That... Seriously, she's pretty Yikes. much dead. <laughs> you know, life expectancy of the time. What? <laughs> no. <laughs> Dysentery, no. especially for better. women. Yeah, especially if they birth children, or if they're on their Oregon Trail. <laughs> if they're on their Oregon Trail, excuse me, the Oregon Trail. Oh, okay. okay. I thought it was some sort of weird euphemism, and I was. No. Like, I know, right? Where <laughs> is this from? Trail, <laughs> the video game when yeah. you go on, I, okay, and then you get dysentery and you yeah. die right away. Yeah, I I thought you were going for you something else. You guys are else. gross. No. No, nope. nope. I would was, never make a that joke was your like phrasing. that. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> cool. Any hoozle. <laughs> Jesus. Moving on. Um, to to kind of make a point about that too, it's interesting that um, they and I guess both one that she's a woman, and that the other quote unquote eyewitness is an elderly man. 
mm-hmm. um, and that both have faculties about them that cannot be trusted. Um, that the the old man can't walk very fast because supposedly he's had a stroke. He can't um, he can't move quickly. Um, and then the woman um, supposedly having glasses um, and seeing through a train. I mean, I know they explicitly state like, "Oh, we they prove that you can see through a train," but that's a weird stretch. It's a very weird stretch because having like been in the city and like been in buildings where like the the L, you know, is going right past, and even being the person who's like on the L train, like it's very tough to be able to kind of you know figure out what you're looking at, let alone to identify such something so specific. Um, and even the, like the sounds that the guy is hearing, um, like above him, who's to say, and this was something that I had thought initially when I was watching the film of no offense, but who's to say that, you know, the sounds that he's hearing aren't like muffled from other apartments or, you mm-hmm. know, the, the sound of something being dropped isn't something else that's dropping. Um, maybe it's not a dead body. Um, granted, if I heard that whatever sound it was, I would have been like, oh, no, I'm dead. Um, or what if it's his, <laughs> you know, it, it, they kind of say that there's a possibility that he was murdered at this time. And then later on, he heard right. the sound. So it, what if the sound was the son coming home and then dropping to his knees? Right. You know, something like that. It's just. Yeah. Um, so another thing to go off of, of what we're talking about, about you were mentioning that the idea of the, uh, the train going by mm-hmm. and the woman seeing that and Choo-choo. they have, they have the exhibits of how you can see through it. Um, you know, we're, we're getting into a different topic here, but I think it's relevant in this film, which is, um, the idea of the really just terrible defense attorney that this uh, person clearly had, yeah. uh, as we see the prosecution as some sort of scientist there to say that no if this train is in this exact spot with this lighting you can see through it and the defense attorney like can't even bring up that the guy can't walk 40 feet in that time period because he had a stroke like um and i don't want to say that it's only because of racism but if you don't say it well i mean but factors do point the 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 reality or is is that I feel don't like you do it. Well, I mean, uh, people like like it just. Oh God! <laughs> obviously, um, the, either it's a coming from lower means, or also b just giving it having a defense attorney at that time that is just doing a job and maybe doesn't really. I think think it's a combination of classism, it's a combination of racism, and it's a combination of a overworked public defender who is basically just being set up with another sort of case that presumably, like me, is going to fail just simply because he might be too stretched thin. I don't know. I'm only inferring from, like, what sort of context would sort of yield such a a piss-poor defense on part of the defendant so. yeah i, I mean the, they're in trial seven days a week right. and right. the right. prosecutor right. is in trial once a month that's not the other the, yeah that's yeah like they've got other cases that they got on their mind too and there's like oh i can't do all the footwork like mr juror number eight yeah so, yeah so it, which is fucked 
it, it definitely yeah. is. Like when you think about it in that. They, I, they have to be the ones who figure all this shit out. Yes. <laughs> and, and I think that brings up a good point of sort of bringing back how the judge was set up as well as how the jury came into the room initially of there were so many factors within that room and it comes all back to like that group think idea of everything about that setting initially was setting it up whether or not you agree for failure um, in some sort of sense but that and it's just by unfortunately the system that it is um, or that existed within that time, within that city, within that, I mean, that neighborhood in, in many ways. Yeah. And, and I think that that's more of a systemic issue across yes. the board and, and not just in, you know, main street USA, wherever, cause there's never really a, a, no, I mean, never for sure setting. State. No. It's kind of like a Springfield USA <laughs> okay. where, yeah. Which, uh, as a child, I did not understand that there were more than one Springfield. <laughs> like, I genuinely was like, oh, this is an Illinois property Simpsons thing, sure. whatever. Yeah, but but uh, no. it was a little later on when I was like, oh, wow, Springfield is a very popular. I mean, to be fair, that's our capital, so it's not yeah. like it's whatever. Definitely but, right. sounds plausible. But they're on the record saying that they chose that name for the anonymity of it. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, I, I think that, that a lot of this film um, is... is poking holes in not just the idea of somebody being either innocent or guilty or guilty or potentially innocent, uh, but it's also just bringing to light a lot of issues within our own both legal system and just our society in general. But I, I also don't think that the film like goes as deep as you could go down it either i think it it is it is grounded at the same time but you could also go so many ways with it just like the jurors do in here where you can spout off a lot of theories and reasons and as long as you get one person to listen to your idea and they think it's plausible like you were saying earlier nick like you can plant that seed and watch it grow and have it sway the room in a matter of two hours and yeah yeah so so going on to final ratings, um, maybe we'll, uh, I guess, start with Sam again. Sure. Okay. Um, overall, um, I think I personally like the film. Um, it's something that I do not mind watching. Um, I find the performance, uh, the performances rather, um, of each gentleman um, quite impressive. Um as well as um, some of the cinematography within the film and sort of the the setting of everything. Um, there's there's a lot to discuss, and I think there's a timelessness um, about this piece that um, one way or another, it, it will continue to be relevant, at least within the society that we, that we have um, and by the, the judicial system that, we that currently exists so let's check in after you know democracy collapse correct um (laughs) um and i think there's um something interesting uh, i think there's not just something but i think there's quite a few points about it that make it interesting um 
no matter when you watch this film. Um, I'm sure that individuals who watched it when it debuted um, probably saw very different components of it than, you know, we do currently sitting here. Yeah. And um, they're probably dead, too. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, I know people who were born in the 50s who are still alive. Um, oh. <laughs> <but> Hug them. <laughs> okay, boomer. She's my grandma. Okay. Oh. Um, but um, I think there's... <laughs> Um, I think there's a number of things about this piece that um, that kind of are um, are well done, and um, even if sometimes it seems like, well, that's a bit shaky of like a, a camera uh, movement or something like that. I think there's um, I think there's something about it that I would not want to see it redone. Um, it's good just the way it is um and there's good discussion that can come out of it as well which i enjoyed um so overall um i i liked it uh and i would give it a three and a half out of five i also very much enjoyed this film i would go so far as to say this film is a classic i enjoyed all the performances in it i enjoyed the cinematography i enjoyed the setting uh, but most of all i just enjoyed the themes, and I also just really like the dialogue. I think that there are a lot of really strong moments in this. Um, and yeah, I feel for Drew number three, even though I think he's an asshole. And I think that's... That's a powerful... That's a powerful yeah. ability to make me feel like, I don't I don't fucking like that dude, but I feel <laughs> I feel bad for that dude at the same time. Like It's also... Uh, nice in in the current climate that we live in right yes. you could see somebody like you know that guy is a real dickhead but yeah. at the same time he seems like he's genuine at least yeah he's genuine at least. Yeah. yeah but um <laughs> yeah i think i would give this uh one of my rarest uh five out of fives wow that's a that's a good movie well laying down the gauntlet here yellow uh, I would also give this a five out of five. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh boy. Uh, I feel like I need to change my rating now. No. <laughs> um, this has been a movie that I've adored for a long time, and it's very much up my alley in that I love movies that are very kind of play-based as far as having a very single setting and having characters just duke it out verbally. And uh, <laughs> it's a very Greek setting. Oh yeah, and uh, I absolutely love this. I love the performances. I love the uh, the way that the ideas are exchanged, and you can honestly feel this uh, story's uh, influence all over. Um, there have been countless properties that have essentially done their Twelve Angry Men. Uh, there was a uh, an episode of The Good Wife, which the lawyer show but there was one episode where you don't actually leave the jury room so a clear inspiration uh there or like the batman three episode or three episode three comic issues uh arc uh which i mistakenly said was the penguin but was actually uh mr freeze i looked it up in the meantime <laughs> boy it's tough because it seems like mr freeze would come across as guilty since you know he has to wear the whole get up and everything that is true it, it was a it was a weird case it wasn't like his main thing so to speak <laughs> Um, but I, I sincerely recommend that three issue arc. I'm looking at Tucson because he reads comics. 
I do. Um, I will look it up. But there are countless other examples. I want to say a Veronica Mars episode did a similar thing too. But this is all over. You know, it's just like kind of Rashomon in in the way mm. it's 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 formative in the way that you can take the structure and the DNA of this story and you can really implant it into so many other properties that are longstanding. You can uh, never have seen this film and still recognize the plot yeah. from simply like piecemeal of other forms of media that have sort of taken after it. Absolutely. And I I love the story um, and the way that I think moving forward we can truly kind of reckon with it is that I, I'm of two minds, which is that I, if you're gonna go see it like on a, a theatrical, you know, production of it and whatnot, um, obviously you should watch the film. But if you're gonna, because there's some great theatrical productions as well. Like on the one hand, I would not want this to be rewritten. I, I'm of two things, which is that I wouldn't want this to be uh, essentially done with the same script, only inserting women or people of color into these characters without rewrites. Because I think that that kind of blind casting, is what they call it, is actually more offensive than actually coming up with ramifications and or trying to at least come up with lived experiences that are specific to these uh, POVs or whatnot. But there are so many different ways you could take this story and rewrite it, um into this day and age that I would love to see people do. I mean, I, you, I, while we were watching it, I could think of a million different ways you could make this. And I don't mean this as like a cutesy whatever, but like as a Me Too production where what if this is a rape case? What if there are women on this jury? And what if men and women are differentiating on what constitutes as rape? Like that is what is happening now. Uh, not that it should have to be happening now, but that is what's happening now. And I would love to see someone try to tackle that in the same manner uh, within these four walls. So I, I absolutely love 12 Angry Men by Sidney Lumet, and I think it's uh, one of the finest films ever made. Well, that is a uh, resounding um, positive review. So good, very good stuff. Uh, I am a big fan of uh, this film. Again, this was my first time, so I definitely would want to sit down and uh, investigate this again for a second time at some point. Uh, but at the same time, I, I give this a four out of five, as I think this is a very, very solid film uh, that has really strong acting and really strong writing and characters throughout, uh, and a lot of the other elements that are here, including the cinematography. Uh, and also the lighting here, uh, and I think, again, um, this is something that's probably just of its time, although I did make mention that the black and white is definitely an effect that has aged well just because of yeah. the uh, story content here. Um, but also, too, uh, just the lighting that goes through here, like when the storm is coming in and it's getting darker and they have to turn the lights on, like it feels legit. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't feel like... Now, where there would be some terrible color grading in the sky that you can see through the windows. So, it actually does feel darker. It gives um, the so. whole piece, it has to have a real-time feeling, which mm -hmm. is the idea that there is no unbroken moment. While you can cut from shots to shot, mm -hmm. we shouldn't be literally missing a moment. So, the idea that we start at one point of the day and we get to another point is usually only evoked by the passage of the sun and whatever. So I'm yeah. glad that they went all out and did a storm and everything. Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, I thought that this was very well put together and, and 
Um, definitely an interesting film, uh, thought-provoking film at the same time, and also uh, an entertaining film, too, because you do see some very passionate performances, which even though I kind of pointed and laughed at at a couple moments because yes it's just a bunch of guys sitting around being like what are you talking about this is we're talking about a man's life here but really i'm talking about my child it's like wait a minute what's going on why are you screaming and why are you talking about your own child that's fine uh but at the same time i think of this era this is landing on a lot of these actors who were giving these kind of grande performances i abandoned my boy yes dude. i abandoned my child I'm, well i'm sorry dale day lewis would knock the fucking shit out of juror three yeah he would. <laughs> that'd be pretty great yep. um but to tie it into what you're saying though as far as these kind of performances like to tie what i was saying into what you're saying is that like that's why i could actually see something like i had mentioned the me too kind of version of this because when i see stories come out about events and whatever i see a lot of males who get outraged despite the fact that they're in no way involved with the story and probably as bad as whatever the story is but probably yes. bad enough where they're outraged because they're upset about the insinuation that quote-unquote man has the capacity to do these things because they only look at it through the lens of their own lived experiences and that's the failure of them and of the system in teaching them that empathy comes from outside and not from within but anyway i i'm with you in that it's both this weird thing that's dated in the sense that it, it's so much a product of its time and in the, in the style of acting mm -hmm. but i totally buy the emotions behind it mm -hmm. Very good. So uh, if you out there have any thoughts on 12 Angry Men, the Sidney Lumet version, or just that story in general, you can always send them on to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com, or you can also find us on Facebook or Twitter at filmtankshow as well. Uh, coming up on our next episode, myself and Nick will be joined by our friend Dan. I got confirmation that he will be here. Oh, fantastic. I, I assumed he would, yeah. um, but um, that's good that we now have it confirmed that he'll be here. Boom. Uh, and we're going to be talking about one of the um, definitely highest, uh, highest rated and also to most positively reviewed films of the year. The fact that it's coming to our local theater and mm -hmm. we don't have to go to Evanston to see this foreign language film, I think, says a lot about it. Yeah. Uh, and that is the uh, new film by Jun Hongbong, which is Parasite. Uh, he directed a film a couple of years ago called Okja that apparently yeah, is quite good. Yeah. I've never watched it, but I've heard it's pretty good. Um, and for... Uh, a lot of other people, uh, the film that did have a little bit more mainstream attention from uh, six years ago now, yeah. uh, the film that uh, myself, Nick, and Tucson actually all saw in the theater while we were going to Aurora University, and that was his previous film, Snowpiercer. Yeah. So, um, have you ever seen that? I have. Ah, yeah. That, yep. fil that film's fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, babies taste best. Yeah, that is the, that yep. is the, the breadwinning line from that. Yeah. Also, too... Uh, Ed Harris uh, making the reasoning for why he has it harder than the people who are literally eating each other in the back. It's cold up here. It's like, oh boy, oh Ed, you and your, you and your fucking, whatever his name, uh, 
you know, Grand Wizard Snoke uh, from Star Wars. That's what that robe looks like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's that's not the... That was uh, before Snoke, but yeah. <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah. Snoke was based off of, yeah. off of him. He it's made, cold in here. It's, it's cold in here, don't you know? Stupid girl. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, that film, the film is uh, Parasite. Uh, and again, it is getting glowing reviews by both critics and uh, just fans who are going to see it. Yeah. A lot of whom are cinephiles. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, um, I feel like just from gathering, from uh, looking on the interwebs a little bit, there have been just, you know, everyday film viewers who want to go see it and um, have positive reactions. Yeah. So, yep. So looking forward to... Uh, yeah, seeing the film and talking about it. Very least, it looks like it will spark a discussion. Hmm. Yep. So, uh, something to look forward to coming up on episode 209. Sam, as always, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Oh. Thanks, Sam. Thank you, Sam. I won't You're very welcome. I won't yeah. speak for the other guys, but we really enjoy having you here again. Thank you. You did. You spoke in the plural single. <laughs> <It's like> yes. <laughs> I, I meant we in, yeah. in, in, you know. I, the, the royal, royal we. we. Okay. Aww. That was great. That was great. Uh, Wait, you... do you guys use the royal we, like the phrase, as like a thing, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, yes. Okay, yes. see, I do as well. And I brought that up at work the other day where I said, oh, I meant like the royal we. Now, I know it's slang, so to speak, but like the person genuinely had no idea what I could possibly mean by this. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I think it's like it's used often enough that it's mm-hmm. kind of become part of our colloquial. I have no yeah. idea what the fuck. Uh, maybe if you remember watch maybe if you remember watching the Big Lebowski, then you would remember the Royal We. Is it in there? Yeah, it's in there. I can't remember that. I, I just know that. I think it's the one film that I remember where they actually cite the Royal Can Wii. Can you guys okay. help me out here a little so bit? The, or? So Well, I'm gonna be bad at explaining it. Yes, so please. I think Toussaint sh- no, I'm saying I think you should. Yeah. Because when I tried to explain it to my coworker, they didn't understand what I was going for. It's when you use we collectively in the way that it to know something singular when you're mm-hmm. speaking for other people mm-hmm. even without necessarily like ascertaining their inclusion oh, okay. in it so yeah. to speak okay. and it started or i should say it originated as an actual royal right. thing yeah. which is that the monarch like in speaks Britain, for would so use it I, but it's been uh, adopted as a oh the royal we like yeah we all think this. i actually use it actually now that you're mentioning it yeah. i actually use this quite often in a condescending tone <laughs> when talking about um things that are happening at the workplace uh, uh, and i'm saying no no that's what we think yep. uh and meaning that that's what upper management has decided and clearly now everyone thinks that and i think that's the thing is that most people actually do use it but then when i had at least said the phrase when i meant the royal we whatever the person i was talking to just did not make the correlation between just the very simple concept and this proper noun that i had ascribed to it even though it's not me it's a thing but anyway okay. The more you know, I've learned something today, <laughs> there you go. which is good. I've learned something and seen 12 Angry Men for the first time. It's been a good day. Yeah. And I got to hang out with all you folks. So, meow. Meow, meow, meow. Royal Wee. <laughs> Can't use it like that. <laughs> no, nah, probably not. Okay. So, um, from Sam Shamara, Tucson Egan, Nick Cheney, and myself, Alex Diegman, thank everyone out there for listening to us here at Film Tank. We'll be catching up with you next time. Oh,